energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not really. It's the various factions under him and it suits them to have him at the front. If you're trying to save for a house deposit and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money, how on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There's certain key things that we want from India and there's certain key things that they want from us. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Believe it or not, it's been a whole year since Rishi Sunak won the Conservative Party leadership race. Um, I don't like anniversaries like this because it always makes me think about what have I achieved in the past year? <laughs> uh, I, can't, I don't really think very much. I haven't learned anything. But your life wasn't as chaotic as, the, as UK <laughs> politics was 12 Thank months you ago. for thinking Ta- that. Take that as a <laughs> something I, positive. I mean, I mean, when you think about it, at this point last year, by the time Rishi Sunak Goodness. almost became Prime Minister technically from tomorrow, um, it really had been quite a quite a couple of months. Yeah, 49 days, the premiership of uh, Liz Truss. Goodness, that was a period, wasn't it? And of course, that disastrous mini-budget, virtually all of which was quite quickly uh, reversed. And in, in some cases, actually, kind of, they, they went in the other direction, particularly on, on certain tax rates. But I think since then, politics has been a lot more stable, hasn't it? Um, I don't know if... Would you say it's been boring? I mean, I think it's been boring in parts, hasn't it, compared to what we've got but, used to? Well, that's it. I mean, have we just been conditioned by everything that's happened in the past, this was almost 10 years of British politics and how many prime ministers they've been and all yes. of the chaos around Brexit and, you know, Boris Johnson running government in a country the way the country's never seen before. And all of those changes i feel like what we're perhaps returning to is is ordinary politics yeah i mean it's been it's been an incredibly unsettled period isn't it i think probably you know dating back to brexit obviously is the the key event but that election mm. in 2017 was really exceptional the only one i can think of in the last few decades where seats went in both directions labor won a load of seats off the tories and the tories won a load of seats off labor and that never normally happens normally the tide goes in one direction so it was it was a really weird election and i think that must have been a sort of convulsion um, from Brexit. So we've been, it's a, it's a long period, isn't it, of uh, unsettled uh, political weather. Uh, and I think it perhaps it's just, it is just sort of going back to normal, isn't it? And, and I guess it, ha- it hasn't been an easy, an easy year for lots of people, but it has been much calmer. It does feel like we have been on an extremely long road to a general election, though. I mean, it, the, the runway started a, a year ago, I mean, essentially, and we're still on it, and we're about halfway through it, if if current expectations are to be believed. Yeah, I mean, it feels like we we talking about a general election. I think we were talking about it last summer, and we were saying, oh, it must be a general election within 18 months. And I don't know if that's just because we're so involved with all this stuff and we constantly think about politics and elections. Possibly it's that. I don't know if, uh, if, if our listeners are talking about general elections, but it does feel that it's getting a bit more like uh, uh, football managers where, you know, the talk of, <laughs> talk of changes very quickly. But, and, uh, and American politics as well, where, where, where the talk is always of the next election. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you've gone through one election, you've got the yeah. next one forward to. I wonder how much, though, it reminds you of the mid-90s and the, the end of the last Tory government, because it did feel like that all we heard about in, in those years running up to the 97 election was defection after defection after defection from the Tory party. Yeah, there are definitely echoes of 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 that of the major government. Of course, you know, there were the, the, the massive by-election wins for both Labour and the Lib Dems, which we're seeing uh, again. We haven't had too many defections yet, have we? And there, there were certainly defections back in the 90s. Yeah, and you're right, and there was talk about the election... Uh, the 97 election coming quite a long way off. But I feel like the, the major government really kind of fell apart right at the beginning, didn't it? It was after Black Wednesday, which was quite early in the term. And then, of course, he had a very slim majority, which very mm. quickly got whittled away. Yeah, and I mean, look, if you think about where the polling is now, it's not 
that different for the Conservative Party, bad as it was and bad as it sort of remains. I was looking at the YouGov polling about how well Rishi Sunak is doing as Prime Minister. Last year, 28% of people said he was doing well. Now it's 25%, as opposed to those who thought he was doing badly. Last year it was 28%, now it's 65%. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty nasty, isn't it? I mean, I think if one's to put an optimistic spin on this, you know, midterm governments are often miles behind in the polls. Mm. And of course, Margaret Thatcher, in I think all three of her terms, certainly at least two of them, for most of the time, the polling said she was highly unpopular and she did go on to win three elections. Now, that's not my prediction that the Tories are going to go on to win the election. But I think we have to take midterm polls with a little bit of a pinch of salt. Yeah, indeed. Well, look, I mean, if we think about the economy, the that was the main focus and what essentially brought Rishi Sunak to power uh, a year ago. Uh, and things are looking a bit different now. Yeah, those five key priorities to halve inflation uh, from 10 to 5%. Uh, the uh, I think we'll see a big drop in inflation next month. That's because the, the big energy spike last year will drop out of the figures. So he looks like he could just about make the uh, inflation target. Some of the other ones are looking a bit more tricky. Growing the economy it hasn't grown a great deal over the past year. Uh, making sure the national debt is falling, that seems to be rising uh, so far. And NHS waiting lists, well, they have not fallen over this year. Of course, the government does point to uh, the strike action from doctors and nurses. Well, if you move from thinking about the past and fast forward to today, the latest figures on jobs showing the number of people in work dropped in the three months to the end of August. In fact, because of a drop in the previous three months, it's actually now the longest run of job losses the UK has seen since the depths of the pandemic. Our Europe economist Anna Andrade is here with us for more. Anna, great to have you with us. What is the big picture emerging then from these latest figures on employment? Good morning. Uh, so yeah, so this was the second release of the jobs uh, market data. We had the first one coming la- last week, and that essentially confirmed that the jobs market is cooling, uh, not only because wage pressures have clearly turned the corner, and that was evidence in two different measures of pay growth, but also because the number of added jobs continued to fall. Now, what you had this in this release was kind of a confirmation of that story. The jobs market is cooling um, and, and, you know, that was that that was it, essentially. And there have been some quite big changes to the way that the ONS calculate these figures, hasn't there? Can you just explain what's going on with that? Yeah, so that kind of adds a layer of uh, complexity to the whole issue. Essentially, the ONS has been struggling with a low response rate to the LFS, to the Labour Force Survey, for a while. This has been a structural problem. Uh, and it does seem that, you know, they saw something in this uh, month's release that, you know, kind of you know, didn't meet their quality um, checks. uh, And so they didn't publish an unemployment rate based on the LFS. Uh, So what they did essentially was use uh, data from other sources, including uh, the payroll um, data and also the claimant account, and essentially just um, provide a new picture for August based on that data. What happens, though, is that, you know, that kind of the only takeaway we can take from today's data is that the unemployment rate held steady between July in the three months to July and the three months to August. But the big question uh, that comes with this change in methodology is that we're a bit left in the dark until the pace at which the jobs market has been cooling over the past year, because the LFS had suggested to a very sharp cooling and other data have, 
other data had pointed to kind of, you know, a slower pace of cooling. So that's still the big question. Okay, yes, that's a good one. I win the fridge or the freezer, I think, is the question we're asking. <laughs> I was trying to explain this earlier, is that it's not quite apples to oranges. It's more sort of Granny Smiths to Golden Delicious <laughs> that we're trying to c- compare the two sets of data. But thank you for explaining that. Yeah, another interesting thing, actually, which I picked up on. So so, so the data is compiled from, from a survey, isn't it? And this is, I think... Just this ask is quite, people if you've got a job. Is that yeah, basically it's it? Like, well, it's actually quite surprising because I think this is the same with the migration stats and lots of other numbers that we report. Are you from around here? As, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Stephen. Um, I think it's slightly surprising that these numbers we sort of take as gospel are actually done on surveys, aren't they? And they're, they're kind of projections, but we say that there are 1.1 million people. This, But actually, they're, they're, they're estimates, aren't they? Yeah. Um, but we hope they're a- accurate estimates. Yeah, they are <laughs> accurate. And the, the ONS does have plans because COVID even kind of made things worse because they had to stop face-to-face interviews. So the ONS is actually moving to a new survey that it's conducted online and that it's supposed to be, you know, broader and more accurate. But that will only come next year. Now, you mentioned the pandemic. One of the big problems that politicians have been talking about a lot is this idea of the number of people who are, quote, economically inactive or essentially not available to work out of the workforce all together. That number has been an awful lot higher since the pandemic. How big a problem is it? Well, it, it has been a big problem for the UK over the past year. Uh, but it's true that we've seen uh, supply, labor supply coming back, so inactivity decreasing um, recently. And that has been a big explanation of why the jobs market has cooled. So you not only had a decline in labor demand, but you also had an increase in labor supply because there were more people coming back to the workforce, probably because you know of high inflation and high um, interest rates, and they were forced to come back. A lot of them were students but the same problem still remains that they were based on LFS data and uh, so we'll need to see what the ONS does to kind of you know tackle um, that uncertainty around the participation. And a separate report out from S&P Global says that UK businesses are more pessimistic than any point um, this year uh, and that's sort of leading to to hiring freezes and staff cuts. What are you expecting from the labour market as, as, as we look ahead? Yeah, so based on the LFS data, which was the headline data until, you know, now, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we kind of expected uh, the jobs market to cool further. I mean, it would be kind of a slow grind. So we expected it had increased nearly one percentage points um, since the start of the year. And that's why I said that, you know, the pace of cooling was, was very fast. But we had expected it to continue this trend um, until early next year. And we had expected it to reach five percent and that's essentially the effect of you know interest rates um working and you see that actually in today's pmi as well you saw that in the employment employment is still kind of you know pointing to a fall um so you know there still seems and we also know that only around half of the tightening done by the voe so far has fed through the economy so i think there's reason to think that you know we're going to see a higher unemployment rate um early next year yeah because of course we're still talking about employment rate an unemployment rate excuse me that's very low in historical context for the uk as well and we we do tend to fall into this this trap of talking about you know a hotter or a colder labour market and essentially we're talking about whether the number of people that can find jobs or have jobs and then we talk about vacancies and the corollary of that would be unemployment rising further down the line which is bad news of course for most people who are thinking about their own jobs but this all of this could be potentially good news for when we think about what the Bank of England does next. Yeah so from the from the Bank of England's perspective it, perspective is just another 
way, uh, not uh, not reassuring way to know that uh, pay pressures are going to ease because essentially wage growth has been pushed higher because of inflation and also because of uh, you know how tight the jobs market is. If inflation now is falling uh, and if pay pressure, if and if the labor market, the slack in the labor market is increasing, that will kind of you know reassure the BOE that things are going in the right direction. So I think you know the BOE will kind of take comfort um, in this yeah in this labor market. So I suppose the, if we're if we're playing the good news bad news game, that could mean good news if you're someone who has to remortgage or you're worried about how high our interest rates are going to go. Because if we've got this signs that the labour market is cooling down, then the Bank of England's not going to raise raise interest rates much further, which means that people are going to be paying less for their mortgages. So it kind of all goes round about. Everyone can find something good to, in all these numbers or something bad. They do call economy the economic <laughs> dismal science for a reason. Right? Yeah, this is the thing where you know the stock market jumps because uh, unemployment has gone up because they think that the the central bank is going to tighten uh, less quickly. So this is all a lot of speculation, isn't it, about where we're going to go with interest rates. I want to ask you about some other up-to-date data which you've got today with those uh, PMIs, Purchasing Managers Index. Sounds very boring, doesn't it? But this is... I just uh, think of someone who's holding like a big, a really big bag of cash, who's buying things. I'm managing this purchase. Purchasing manager. I must yeah. be purchasing manager. But it sounds very important, doesn't it? I don't purchase anything at work, uh, apart from sandwiches. Uh, but so the PMIs, which are the, a very up-to-date measure of the economy, we've got those for October, haven't we? Even though we're still a week from the end of the month. And it was a bit of a mixed bag, wasn't it, for the UK? Yeah, so I mean, it came in slightly above expectations, but it's essentially, I mean, the, the big takeaway is that it remained broadly stable and it still remained in, uh, you know, contractionary territory. Now, if you take the PMI data at face value and if you assume that it stays constant over the next following two, two months, then it actually, you know, its historic relationship with GDP actually shows that we should be expecting a contraction in output of 0.2% in the last quarter of the year. Uh, so it kind of, you know, gives us this idea that we are in the early stages of a recession. I would just make like two two caveats around that. I think the jury is still out whether we're actually there or not, just because We've been here in the past, so around a year ago, the PMI was also in contractionary territory, and then the economy proved more resilient. There's just things that the PMI is not capturing. And um, and yeah, the second, it's also that there's been some big uh, revisions between the flash estimate, which is what we had today, and the final release. Um, and there's been a big upward revision in the last month's date. Um, so yeah, so we'll have to wait for that. Yeah, we've been talking about a possible recession, haven't we, for at least a year and it hasn't happened yet yeah. I feel like we should get a sound effect now for every time someone mentions it yeah we should do we should do like a Some little sad um... clown noise like <laughs> 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 the other thing I think worth talking out here is that we've got, had the PMIs today for France and Germany and maybe I'm just trying to be uh British and optimistic, but they're, they're even worse over there, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess we'll need to see. I think our view has been that the UK is tipping into a recession while the Eurozone is proving more resilient. I mean, one thing that has different, and I mean, at least so far, but one thing that has different between the two economies is that the pace of cooling in the jobs market has just been much, you know, stronger here in the UK. So, you know, the PMI, as I said, it gives some indication of activity, but for instance, in the UK, it doesn't include construction or retail or government um, sector outputs. Um, so, you know, it's only one measure. And I would probably say that what happens with unemployment, and that's the big difference between the UK and the euro area, it's probably more important um, of what will happen to the economy. Anna, we've been talking today about a year since Rishi Sunak was picked as the leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, of course, the economy was very much a reason that brought him to that position. How is the situation now facing the UK economy compared to a year ago? 
I think uh, on balance, it has been better than expected. Um, we one just one year ago, we thought we would be heading into a recession that would be energy driven. Um, then at the start of this year, there was a massive improvement in energy prices. Uh, so overall, and there's was also the labor market also proved much resilient than what we were expecting. So overall, the economy has muddled through and I guess we avoid a recession and I guess that's the positive news. The other positive news is also that um, Prime Minister Richie Sunak might be able to meet his um, CPI, uh, sorry, his inflation goal. So yes. we expect um, inflation to fall below 5% by the end of the year. So it's good. It's good news looking backwards. I think the problem is that things are about to get worse, and that will just the time of it will be bad for for someone that's seeking re-election. <laughs> that's all going so well, and then all oh, the last no, you just pulled the rug out. Economists, we're going to end on a positive note. No, it's not happening. Well, thank you so much for that. That's really interesting stuff from Anna Andrada, our Europe economist. I mean, while well, the boss of British Gas's parent company Centrica is warning of more tough times ahead for households, he's told Bloomberg that he fears the worst is still to come and people struggling to pay their energy bills. He's been speaking to our energy reporter, Priscilla Azevedo-Rocha, who joins us now uh, with more details. Priscilla, Chris O'Shea's comments about how households are dealing with energy prices really quite worrying. What did he have to tell you? Hi, thank you for having me. So yes, his comments were quite worrying. Uh, he said that energy bills, that customers this winter, they're still going to struggle a lot to pay their energy bills because like in the UK, we're still not out of the, the cost of living crisis yet, right? So all the households, they're coming into this winter with higher interest rates, higher consumer bills. There's also a lot of people refinancing their mortgages. So household energy bills, they're going to be higher on top of that because we have the cap coming off. So it's kind of a worrisome situation, right? Mm. What kind of levels of debt are we talking about and how, how, how big a problem is this? Can you, can you quantify it a bit for us? Yes, yeah, sure. So uh, the the debt has been increasing over the past year or so, and it reached like record levels in July. We've seen like the highest levels of households not paying their bills uh, on record this summer, and um, this can like he's warning that this can become even worse because now we're gonna have more changes and the bills have the risk of getting higher as winter approaches and households they put their their they put their heatings on ahead of like during winter and everything. So there's more energy usage, which means higher bills. The, the confusing part of all of this, of course, is that energy prices are actually a lot lower than mm-hmm. they were this time last year. I mean, if we look at you know wholesale prices, which eventually filter down after the cap to, to households as well, they're a lot lower than they were this time last year. There seems to be a lot less fear about us getting through the winter um, because you know we've built up stockpiles mm-hmm. and, and we're sort of a bit more prepared this winter compared to last winter. So why is this a problem now? Why are prices still so high? Prices are still so high because Europe itself, not only the UK, they're rebuilding their energy matrix, right? After they 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 stopped relying on Russia for pipeline supplies of gas. So right now it's like you have a situation where you had cheap, reliable source, not so much for the UK because the UK never relied that much on, on Russian gas, but it's, uh, it's a supply and demand situation. You have less suppliers in the market, you have more competition for fuel and you have the sensitivity that prices move a lot because uh, because of the risk of potential dislocations of supply. Yeah, there's a nice chart in your uh, story. So last winter, the average price was about £2,500 for a typical user, whereas this winter, the projection is it'll be about £2,000. So mm-hmm. quite a lot better than last year, but not uh, certainly not cheap by, by any means. 
Um, I want to ask you about another uh, interesting story you've written, which is about this report commissioned by Centrica um, about the long queue. And it's a very, very long queue, isn't it, for uh, renewable projects waiting to get connected to the power grid. Um, just explain what, what the problem is here, because it's it's quite a big issue, isn't it, for, for the national supply? It is. It is a big issue. And that's because, like... Um since the invasion of Ukraine, or even before that, with the government's plans for net zero by 2050, there was this urge to build more renewables. But as every time, when you have an urge to do something, and there's uh, a lot of impetus into doing something, the infrastructure doesn't necessarily walk hand in hand. So you have projects. Projects don't take one year to be built or two years. They take 10 years. So you need you have a deadline and you have to achieve. But at the same time, you have a grid that is strained. So the more and more people trying to get into this, the more and more this queue grows and more and more it delays the process. So is the effect of wanting to do something, but at the same time, the infrastructure is not there. Because I think the, uh, from what I know about it, the, the grid is very much designed for how we used to generate power, yes. which was burning a load of coal, particularly in Yorkshire and the East mm. Midlands, uh, and bringing the power down that way. Yeah. But of course, a lot of the renewables are off the coast. So yes. they're sort of, it's all in the wrong place. <laughs> your, your lines are in the wrong place to put them all together. What, what's the kind of bigger impact of that, though? Apart from the fact that these projects can't get online, surely it's going to make it more difficult to attract more investment. Yes, that's true. It will get more difficult to attract investment because investors, they want certainty, right? They want to get into a project and fund the project knowing that this project is going to be done. So that means that there's a lot of wasted capacity as well. So let's say, this report is arguing there are some projects they're ready to go they're ready to be connected by uh, to the grid but they can't and they can't exactly because there are other ones in the queue ahead of them they got there first but they're not as ready as they would be to provide electricity if that makes any sense yeah so this is a pretty big problem isn't it so we we may have all these plans for renewables the funding may be in place the companies may be happy to do it but if they can't get connected to the grid then uh, the whole thing's not going to happen. Yes, and that's and that's exactly what Chris Oshie was telling us. Like, there needs to be some change coming from the regulators on how they approach this. And I was going to ask you about that, actually. Off Gemma in charge of all of this. Are they trying to do anything about it? They said they will say something about it in November. So November 12 is the date that we're all looking forward to see what is going to be out of this, if there's going to be any changes in how the system works. So I think that was the intention with this report, right, to the head of the Ofgen's decision to say, look, the situation is not looking good. We as Centrica, we have those projects, we're ready to go, but it's delaying our connection to the system. What can you as government do to help us to speed up this thing, which is in the interest of everyone? This surely isn't just a problem in the UK as well. How are other countries dealing with the strains on the grid and trying to get uh, these new renewable projects connected? Absolutely. It's not a problem in the UK. It's a problem all over the world because it's a matter of changing a system that you have in place for generations, for years and even centuries in the case of the UK into something new, right? So if you're starting from scratch, it might be easier. So you just build infrastructure. But in places like Germany, where they have been reliant on pipeline gas for a long time from Russia, it's they're facing similar problems problems because they need to rebuild the infrastructure. But I think regulation in the UK is very different from regulation in the EU. So they are addressing this at different ways. It's, I mean, it's such an interesting thing to think about because mm. there's been such a political push to try and get more money into this sector. And you sort of forget, if you're not thinking about it very carefully, about the architecture that has to come behind it and, yes. and the big changes that have to be made. I mean, 
is there sort of any indication as to, to how quickly this problem could be fixed? It there's no indication in terms of timing, but uh, but it can be it can be fixed in terms of taking different approaches on who's ready to be connected to the grid, and it, it's a matter of engineering. If you think about it, you can't build a building in one day, right? It's something that requires a lot of planning, a lot of effort, and you want to achieve something, you need to maximize the resources you have at the moment, and perhaps change the processes that you have in place. They might not be fitted for change. And this is also controversial, isn't it, in a lot of places, because um, like building HS2, although thankfully not on that kind of scale of difficulty, putting power lines across the country is not popular, is it, in a lot of, people, uh, a lot of people's backyards? And of course, you can put them around the sea, but that's much more expensive, isn't it? So It is. There's also a problem of land usage, of not in my backyard, which are all very common things that we've seen throughout, like developing in the UK throughout the year. So you have this challenge because you have to deliver green renewable energy, but at the same time, the, the, you have to change the way things are set up, like they're set up to be. You have to change the engineering and how they look. Priscilla, you have some more reporting coming up um, mm. on this story, which include a trip and a helicopter. Give us a sneak <laughs> preview of what we can expect. Yes, that's right. So last Friday, I went to, to Centrica's offshore gas field in Morecambe, and, uh, where they are working on developing a carbon capture system there as well, alongside gas um, exploration. And so we're going to have a story on this, explaining how it works, which will involve like a lot of color of this bumpy helicopter ride on a very, very wet Friday. Here in was, the UK. It, was it cold? It was very cold. It was in the middle of the Irish Sea. Not, not, not the middle, like about 27 kilometers of the coast. But uh, the rain was just a rain show. Oh, no. it, ni- nice views, though. Lovely views. <laughs> and, and, and this was off the coast of Blackpool. Yes. And Blackpool is pretty cold at this time of year, <laughs> never mind 20 miles off the coast. Yes, but it, it was a great experience. It's like, it's really nice to actually see how the work in engineering is actually being done and talk to the people working there. And they even said to me, look... It's October. Imagine how it, how cold it gets here, like in December and January. Yeah, I bet. You timed your trip well. <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to hearing more and reading more from you on this story as well. Priscilla Azevedo Rocha, thanks so much for joining us with those details. That is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Our audio engineer today was Marufal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.